Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi, everyone. Happily, Buffalo is a pretty diverse place. Like a lot of cities, Buffalo has its own old world marketplace. On Buffalo's east side, you'll find the Broadway market. So if you need lambs made of butter, chocolate sponge candy, your watch repaired, or you simply like to watch older, perfectly coiffed ladies fight in line for Polish sausage, we've got you covered. I'm Peter Sabota. Like most difficult decisions, Gang membership is often fraught with ambivalence, and for good reason. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Robert Duran, describes what he has learned in 20 years of being involved in, joining as an observer, and researching gangs. He begins by describing his own youthful involvement as a gang member and why he remains committed to a critical reevaluation of gang membership. Dr. Duran describes how conventional definitions of gangs are limited and fail to capture what gangs are and the opportunities and experiences of power they offer their members. He continues on to describe his findings, including his focus on the contexts in which gangs form, what holds them together, and his recommendations based on his research. Robert Duran, Ph.D., is Associate Professor at New Mexico State University's Department of Criminal Justice. His research concerns racism in the post-civil rights era and community resistance, from gang evolution and border surveillance to disproportionate minority contact and law enforcement shootings. He is the author of Gang Life in Two Cities, an insider's journey with Columbia University Press. He was the recipient of the 2011 New Scholar Award from the American Society of Criminology Division on People of Color and Crime. Dr. Duran was interviewed in January of 2014 by Stephen Schwartz, research associate at the UB School of Social Work's Buffalo Center for Social Research. This is Steve Schwartz with Professor Robert Duran, who will be talking about his research on gangs, which is featured in his 2013 book, Gang Life in Two Cities, An Insider's Journey. Robert, having read some of the this book, I know your research really starts with your own story as, as an insider. Yeah, and you're correct, Steve. So my book goes back into my own experiences into the early 1990s when I was jumped into a gang. I'm from Ogden, Utah, and so it's not a place in the literature that's typically seen as where gangs are present. But uh, the gang that I joined, they had a jump-in process where five, six individuals who were the original gangsters of the gang, which are kind of more the senior members, do this initiation process where uh, you fight back and they kind of beat you up for a period of time until you demonstrate kind of this loyalty and the strength to be part of the gang. My own experience of getting jumped in and becoming part of this group I never had seen or perceived at high school that that would become part of my life and who I was, that, you know, I came from a good family, good working class values. 
So the importance of family, the importance of respect, hard work, and being there for each other and our family. Religion as well, but not of the main religion that's for the state of Utah. So not really expected to become part of the gang. And I think that gave me like a different viewpoint as well of people who join these groups and uh, the variety that exists. But as I became more further involved, I started getting more into negative outcomes and with conflict and where at a period of time I thought I'd probably go to prison like many of my friends and family members and really trying to see some things that were really shocking my life kind of in my late teenage years of is this really what it was supposed to be, this gang, and is it really helping me or hurting me? Not just me. I think the thing that really came out is hurting those around me. So I think when I was seeing that this had the potential to hurt those around me, that I started to become more, I got to try and do something different. And so I started getting into school as to work on lowriders, to work on cars. And then when I was in school, I started realizing after high school that I liked going to school and I liked learning and that I could do something about trying to explain why there are gangs. And that fueled pretty much my whole journey of college education and research, and that's led to this book, Gang Life in Two Cities. Now, can you tell us about your current research that's featured in the book, which really spans 20 years, and what methodological and theoretical frameworks have shaped your inquiry? Yes, methodologically, I identify myself as an urban ethnographer. So the training that I started receiving at University of Colorado when I went to graduate school was this whole idea of ethnography, that your goal is to learn the perspective of others. And the way you do that is by immersing yourself in the setting, doing interviews, field notes. And so anthropology has its early roots of going to other countries and exploring groups different from oneself. And uh, University of Chicago also studying like the city. So I kind of come from this background of attempting to get the viewpoint of others and being the research tool for which I can gather data. So my own background influences who I have access to, my networks. So I think one thing that makes it unique is I was able to talk to a variety of different individuals, both who were in gangs, current gang members, ex-gang members, community members. But one thing I also really made it important to do, because as I was starting to go to college when I was younger, I had access to improved jobs. So I worked in youth corrections, I worked in juvenile probation, and that gave me access also to law enforcement and kind of that language and way of thinking. So I made sure too to also do interviews with police officers, prosecutors, and try and look at things from a variety of different angles. And the interviews by themselves, the ethnography, the field notes, immersing myself in the setting, really helped to get like a current perspective of what was going on. And this is in Ogden, Utah, but then when I went to graduate school at University of Colorado, Denver, Colorado became another site. So I had like this comparative ethnography, doing interviews, immersing myself, setting. But another thing, it was kind of limited to that point of time. So the interviews 
were very eye-opening and really made even change the way I thought of gangs when I talked to friends, people I knew about their own experiences, that if it wasn't in this framework of doing an interview, I would have never known all that they had going on even in their own lives. But another thing I added was historical. So I did my best to use primary documents, newspapers, to try and recreate how gangs first developed in these cities of Denver, Colorado, and Ogden, Utah, and what were the conditions that led to these gangs being there in the first place. So theoretically, I think uh, more of the critical theories in sociology and legal studies have influenced my explanation. And as my advisor told me to, don't read what's been written on book on gangs. You know, immerse yourself, and then later, after you've collected all the data, see if it matches the current literature. And I think that really helped me to not go in with these assumptions, even though I was from gangs, but the assumptions of the literature. But then later, after I collected the data, then compare it back to what has been said and the explanations for why gangs exist that allowed me to even kind of create new explanations for gangs and a kind of a new counter-gang paradigm than that currently exists. Why is the definition of gangs so important to you? Yes, that definition is pretty much caught in that current gang paradigm where gangs are defined as more kind of crime as a central part of the definition that they're youth. So that definition of crime, youth, really, if you look at like historically and even contemporary crime, youth, it doesn't really capture really what a gang is. So individuals can be young, you know, maybe 12, 13 as young or even younger and more older as well. So some 30s, 40s, 50s having ties to gangs. So I think the definition of just youth is kind of limited and also the focus on crime that it doesn't really capture the historical conditions that led to these gangs to be there in the first place the inequality that makes gangs emerge. So rather than looking at like pathological individuals who would join a gang or become part of these groups, I look at more of the problem conditions that are exist in the areas where gangs form. And they don't just form in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Boston. These conditions exist in neighborhoods across the United States. So people being surprised that, yeah, Ogden, Utah has gangs? Yeah, where I am now, Las Cruces, New Mexico, they have gangs. What presence do they have is really also influenced by the response to these groups. So the definition that I use for a gang is the one I borrow from uh, Brotherton and Barrios. So their definition is a group formed largely by youth and adults of marginalized social class, and I add in, or racial and ethnic groups, and they continue, which aims to provide its members with a resistant identity, an opportunity to be individually and collectively empowered, a voice to speak back to and challenge the dominant culture, a refuge from the stresses and strains of the body or ghetto life, and a spiritual enclave within which its own sacred rituals can be generated and practiced. So I think looking at new ways to define gangs and is it a social problem and how do we respond to it? Do we attack the individuals or do we try and do something about the conditions that they form? I think that's really the key important piece of defining gangs. What is the root of the problem? 
You've discussed your own history. As an ethnographer, how did you maintain your objectivity? Yeah, so my goal throughout this entire research project was to gather the best data as possible. And I know in undergraduate school, I would learn things of research methods and interviews. But really, graduate school pushed me to really go to another level of documenting everything. So my objectivity, I think, was shaped by, you know, I would get answers to the questions that I have of why gangs were there and present from different people and from different angles and also historically and comparatively, that kind of gave me more of a distance that each piece was answering these questions. So law enforcement, as I think about like a continuum of the way people think about gangs, law enforcement has a viewpoint of gangs that is on one end of the continuum, and on the total opposite end of the continuum is the gang members themselves. But the ones who are usually described as gang experts are... Oftentimes, for presentations, law enforcement, that you're really getting a piece that is, like I said, one side of the continuum and not the other side. And so some TV shows and movies, I think, really push towards that perspective of this is the way we think about gangs. So like uh, the History Channel show of Gangland, I think that really gives a viewpoint of everyone wants to talk that their gang's the baddest and the coolest and as I talk about the reasons for why gangs are present, that's one of the gang ideals that I mentioned in one of my chapters, kind of that style of creating this image of what they are. But empirically, the gang is a wide variety of different individuals and the conditions that they're created that I think those shows have a hard time of really being able to get at that point. Now that we understand your conceptual framework and a bit about your methodology, can you tell us what your important findings were? Yeah, so important findings. uh, Each chapter in the book goes from building this kind of counter-gang paradigm, this other way of looking at gangs. So it first starts off about looking at, like, the overall gang literature. You know, over since 1927, how have gangs been described? What kind of access did these researchers have and being able to find out their information. So I start off in the introduction kind of this overall information that has been put forth about who gangs are and what they do. And I move towards my own research access, my own insider perspective, how that shaped the different forms of data that I collected and trying to look at things from a variety of different angles. And then it moves into the war on gangs and the post civil rights era, which focuses on law enforcement's efforts to suppress gangs and how that gang label could be used to come down against everybody in the community. So just because they said there was gangs allowed them to stop, harass, give people a hard time who met that image. So when we look at racial ethnic inequality for Ogden, Utah, Denver, Colorado, Ogden, Utah is primarily the Latino community that was receiving the brunt of those uh, aggressive law enforcement. Denver, Colorado is black and Latino that were experiencing these differential treatment. And then I move into another chapter, the chapters where I look at historically the conditions that led to gangs in Denver, Colorado, Ogden, Utah. So I break those up into two separate chapters. And then I move into the pressures 
that people face in deciding whether to join a gang, and this is primarily focused on youth till in high school, middle school age. What are the pressures that young people feel and, and encounter whether to join a group that is known as a gang and has these kind of connotations of fear and you know, also strength, but also you know people don't bother you. And, but most people don't join a gang. And after that chapter, I go into what holds the gang together, and then I move into looking at solutions. And solutions, I think, is the most important piece that I try and lead to. And with this first book on gangs, it largely is capturing the research that I've collected primarily from 2000 to 2006, but it goes back into the early 1940s for Denver, Colorado, and uh, early 1970s for Ogden, Utah. And the second book that I'm working on is the research that I've done on the U.S.-Mexico border region. So uh, El Paso, Texas, one of the safest second or third large cities in the United States, low numbers of homicides, adjacent to one of the most violent places in the world, 2008-2009, you know, a high number of murders and killings that drug cartels and the feuds that have gone on, definitely different than I ever researched before in Utah or Colorado. So I think that captures the important findings. You called that a gang paradox when we spoke. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, yeah, so gang paradox, I devoted so much time to researching gangs that during graduate school. And I think when I was done and I moved to southern New Mexico, Las Cruces, I think I kind of had this assumption that I know everything about gangs. I've studied it so much. I've talked to so many people historically and everything. I have a good sense of everything that it's about. And when I moved here to Las Cruces, New Mexico, the border region, you know, so seeing a fence dividing families, people being deported, border patrol, kind of this militarized zone, that it was kind of like this other level of enforcement and kind of the, the politics that separate countries. But the gang paradox idea pretty much came from this idea that here are all the conditions that poverty, Law enforcement identifies Latino, African-American as higher gang involvement. So here are all these conditions, lack of resources, that could really lead to having a larger gang presence. And I think politically people turn that other ways. But in this area, gangs have actually, they're present, but they're not at the level of violence amongst each other in terms of homicides or the way they're treated by the police. So it's kind of like this place that doesn't really fit the typical literature of even what I studied before or even these other places. So that's what I'm working to develop now is completing the writing and hopefully turn this into a second book shortly. Well, I know you don't view gangs only through a criminal justice lens, as you've spoken to us. Can you tell us about the core ideals you found within these Mexican-American gangs? Well, that was kind of a hard chapter, and there was an article that was published in Aslan, one of the Chicano Studies' most premier journals, that this chapter was kind of like, I didn't want to sensationalize gangs, and nothing about the data that I was collecting was 
focusing on doing what law enforcement was already creating an image of. But I wanted to figure out what is this glue? What is what what holds the gang together? So you're facing all this adversity of in the community by police, criminal justice system. How can this gang, this group of people still exist despite all these obstacles of possibilities of death, incarceration, hurt, victimization? How can such a group still exist despite all those problems? And so the core ideals of the gang were built from trying to look at all these forms of opposition and how they can still operate. So I look at like the loyalty, so being formed, you know, even before, but really demonstrated during the jump-in process, this loyalty of I got your back, we're creating something, we've created something that is different, that we have a source of like empowerment, and no one is going to bother you no more. So like this protection that before as an individual, you know, maybe as your family or hopefully someone stick up for you, but in the gang, it was really this creation of these are the people that are now going to look out for you wherever you are. And then also looking at another core idea of this pressure to respond courageously to external threats. So in this hostile, kind of more neglectful environment, that there are people who push boundaries and threaten people's safety, that the gang itself kind of demonstrated their strength by making sure that and demonstrating that they would not allow threats to the individuals who are part of that gang. And and that's where it leads to problems, too, of conflicts between gangs. But that putting in work, uh, responding courageously to external threats was a key piece. This third core ideal that I found was promoting and defending the gang status. So being able to constantly represent. And the representation of the gang really varied by age. So if you're in teenage years, what it meant. If you were an adult, what it meant. So it seemed to transition with time. So the most active, I think, are still the juveniles and trying to create a name for themselves that they fit within this larger group. But this constant kind of pressure, if you're not defending the gang, if you're not sticking up for who we are, there can be consequences, you know, with the rules of the gangs, kind of informal rules that they have. And then this last piece that I added of poor ideals of the gang was maintaining a stoic attitude toward gang life. So this kind of smile now, cry later, that with all the problems that are going on in the neighborhood and, you know, facing negative consequences of possibly death and incarceration. or There's going to be bad times, but maintaining the gang and who it is, that there's also going to be the positive things. And the positive things are supposed to be what outweighs the negative. And with these ideals, most people have a difficulty living up to them. So uh, individual personalities and a wide variety of things that go on in people's lives that these ideals have been definitely hard for a lot of people to maintain and that's why I think people don't stay in the game forever too that they transition out of this life mm-hmm. so you've identified in core ideals loyalty courage against threat defending the gang and stoicism toward the negative consequences 
And that kind of contrasts with the way you see the criminal justice system has responded to gang behavior. Could you explain that? Yeah, and I think it really started, you know, there's been some great work done by Joan Moore and James Diego Vigil, who were looking at gangs in Los Angeles, California, and seeing this shift over time of when drugs and when this attention started becoming towards criminal justice involvement in communities. I think in the past, a lot of the literature seems to highlight they were kind of at points before the 1940s that kind of just neglect there's this population, but as long as they're segregated, we don't really have too much involvement or attention on these individuals. But I think after the Zoot Suit riots, which occurred in Los Angeles, and then that fear spread to other places around the country, that it started going more towards this is a population that we're identifying as a problem, and we're going to now increase our different wars against this population, so the wars on gangs that have been launched from that time, so curfew, loitering, vagrancy, all these different things they started adding to really come against gangs, but I think the major shift happened that in the civil rights movement, there's a lot of good information of how gangs were actually no longer being seen as the way to address the needs of the community, that these civil rights groups were tackling these root problems that it started becoming a point where gangs weren't popular, that it was kind of like this lifestyle that, you know, you weren't cool if you were in the gang stuff, you were kind of backward. And civil rights movement, examples such as like the Denver Crusade for Justice really started showing that, okay, what do we have problems with? If we got problems with the schools and the police, how are we going to really address those points? But with counterintelligence programs led by the FBI, police department, aggressive enforcement, started really seeing that, okay, here's a population, I think, that uh, can be seen as a challenge to the mainstream way that how things are run. So we don't want groups like this developing. And so we see that point of the counter against these civil rights organizations. So with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, how these groups were countered through FBI, police practices, that it really started getting to this mid-1970s where criminal justice system started really incarcerating more people than it ever have had before, using the law enforcement to be more aggressive and less guidelines of the reasons why someone could be stopped, how they could be treated. So the chapter where I have on the war on gangs in the post-civil rights era is really documenting from the 1980s on this whole push to criminalize and incarcerate marginalized populations. Well, how would you describe the importance of your research? I think the importance of my research is I look at the early creation of when gangs first began and also the early study of gangs. So from 1927, Frederick Thrasher. So for 87 years since that time frame, that the systematic study of gangs, that there has been a lot of interest in the topic. So I counted more than a 1,000 different individuals who've written on this topic in the past 87 years, different techniques, methods that they've used, different areas that they've studied, 
But I think one thing that I found interesting of all these individuals who researched gangs is that less than 40 had devoted at least a year or more of having direct interaction with individuals who are involved in this lifestyle, and less than a dozen who are substantially part of their lives of trying to reduce violence and to change the outcomes of the people involved. So in academia and I think research, there is kind of this difficulty of the experts on the topic often have studied it from a distance, and I think that's what really makes my research unique is I'm from these backgrounds, and I've done it the research comparatively, looking at different areas. So really trying to give voice to this population that there are so many different stereotypes and assumptions about who these people are that join gangs and are around in, in these settings that I think my overall goal of you know, encouraging empowerment, giving voice, looking at things historically and comparatively, that this counter-gang paradigm that I'm encouraging definitely stands out in the current literature that exists, and I don't see anyone else currently doing it, but hopefully this can bring up good discussion and get people thinking in other ways about this topic. Well, after your 20 years, what advice do you have for our listeners who are social workers or practitioners, teachers, or researchers in this area? You know, my advice is, as I look over time, there's been a lot of good work done, good efforts. So I think even social work efforts of the past where they would put like a community outreach worker, someone there in the community who would try and reach out to the people in the neighborhood and provide alternatives, that I think this idea of that punishment has to be the solution creates more difficulties and more problems in the long run. And I think more research is starting to document those difficult outcomes. So, you know, seeing the importance of cultural competence and the ability to care about humanity and the dignity of people and of different backgrounds. So by race, by class, by gender, by religion being kind of open and encouraging that people who are on the margins in these neighborhoods and around the country they can do other things and with support and encouragement you don't have to stay in a gang or go that lifestyle that there are alternatives and I think with that encouragement from others so I think early on even my own background I grew up using people's negativity and and hate as energy but I think I definitely appreciated the ones who were more supportive and encouraging and yeah, sometimes I fall and don't carry on just like, uh, you know, other people that I've known too. That If you're living in these conditions, it's not always going to be like uh, a real beautiful kind of happy all the time, but there are going to be difficulties. But I think I see as I worked with this group in Denver, Colorado, I give it the pseudonym of ASAP in the book, Area Support for All People. But this group in Denver really impressed me because it involved ex-gang members working with current gang members. And the overall vibe was to reduce the violence. And these ex-gang members had a way of building rapport and reaching out and encouraging the youth who were current gang members in a way that 
no one else could really reach these youth and make them pay attention and think about their options in life. So I think incorporating individuals who have these kind of backgrounds of maybe being in gangs, maybe being in prison or having difficulties, that instead of pushing them off to the side that they are of no value, I think these are some of the individuals that can play the greatest role in rechanneling the energies of individuals involved in gangs. I think of uh, like Luis Rodriguez, you know, he's written books about gangs and creating alternatives, encouraging poetry and writing. Think of the efforts of Father Greg Boyle, Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, you know, how he's been able to use religion and work as creating a way out. And in the last chapter before the conclusion in my book, I outline these three kind of strategies that I've developed over this 20 years of background with gangs that could make, create success. So I focus on a strategy one of cultural empowerment and promoting gender equality. So learning from how the civil rights movement, gender equality was one area that created a lot of problems and I think held these groups back to their full potential. So moving past those divisions, so making sure leadership positions, male, female, and this idea of cultural empowerment, that you learn your history and your background, you can have pride in where you come from, and that can also allow you to be a better person in society, getting that education. I look at challenging the police and mainstream view of gangs. So uh, there's a wide variety of individuals who are in gangs. Some are not fun to be around with, and others, you know, great, you know, better people. And I can think of either, even other organizations and groups that I've done interviews with. There's personalities that in all fields, I think, some that I don't like to come across. So recognizing or, or taking just one individual to represent everybody, I think, is a wrong way to go about it. And really... Seeing the last point I had of designing a program that responds to gangs is involving people from the community who have these backgrounds and also, you know, what the support and guidance of social workers who bring this cultural competence, this understanding of what's going on, this caring, this support to create alternatives. Well, empower, equality, and educate as you've done are great optimistic ways to end our conversation today. I want to thank you for taking your time to talk with us about your research and your experience, and we hope to hear more from you in the future. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Steve. Thank you for your time, and thank you for having this opportunity. You have been listening to Dr. Robert Duran discuss his research on gang membership on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.